Welcome to the Growing Rural Podcast, where we focus on all things rural in South Carolina. We will discuss topics on healthcare, economy, education, and the unique culture that is our rural state. This podcast is supported by the South Carolina Center for Rural and Primary Healthcare. Please join us for today's topic. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Growing Rural Podcast. I'm your host today, Dr. Kevin Bennett. Our guest today is Professor Annie Eisenberg. She's an associate professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law, and she's actually currently on research leave doing a fellowship at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., where she's joining from D.C. with us today. So, Annie, welcome to the podcast. Um, Thanks so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you ended up as a law professor and I guess kind of the general work that you do. Sure. Um, So uh, as you say, I'm I'm a law professor at the University of South Carolina. I teach a program called the Environmental Law Clinic, as well as first year property law. Um, I'm originally from upstate New York, but I've spent the past decade or so kind of working my way south. Um, I graduated from law school in New York in 2012. Then I clerked in St. Louis uh, for two years. And after that, I did a two-year academic fellowship at West Virginia University College of Law, which really confirmed my interest in going into legal academia and writing about law in rural communities. Uh, Then in 2016, I got very lucky on the academic job market and was invited to start a position teaching at South Carolina, which is where I have been ever since. So you say you have an environmental law clinic. What is what is that? Yeah, so law clinics, I think I'm a little biased, but they are pretty much the coolest thing in the world. Um, So I'll give you a little bit of general background about law clinics and then tell you about my clinic. Um, So. Starting in, I want to say the 60s or 70s, there was this movement to make all of the expertise in law schools more accessible to the public. Um, And there was also a push to get law students more practical experience um, before they go out into the real world. Lawyers don't have, like doctors have a residency. Lawyers don't have the same thing. So the, the law clinic movement was kind of born to serve two purposes. One, to provide pro bono legal assistance to members of the public who need it. So low-income individuals, nonprofits, state agencies. Um, and then the second goal is to is experiential education for law students. Um, so my clinic is a one semester, six credit course that up to 10 law students can take in the fall semester. Um, And it's a really neat opportunity for them to really take the lead on providing some technical assistance to um, our client base are tend to be environmental and environmental justice nonprofits and advocacy groups. Um, And we're a transactional clinic, meaning we don't sue people. I kind of don't have that background. We don't necessarily have the resources. It it ends over the course of one semester. but we do what we can. We basically tell the clients, look, you've got questions. We'll try to get answers. Come work with us over the course of the semester. Um, so we've done just a, a whole bunch of different things for uh, members of the South Carolina environmental community um, and, and beyond as well, looking at things like heirs property, um, environmental regulations, individual properties that nonprofits have questions about, um, we will take on all kinds of different matters and just try to to 
advance the cause of sustainability in South Carolina. That's interesting. So you're, you know, you actually take students to a community or a group to tackle a specific issue that they're having and trying to try to resolve it in some way. Yeah, I actually used um, last year a, 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 I distributed a request for proposals and just kind of sent it far and wide a few months before my semester started, just saying, hey, look, if you're a nonprofit or a public entity in South Carolina or beyond and you want our help, tell me what you want. Um, and we get all kinds of sort of legal questions, policy questions, questions about legislation or, or other kinds of legal problem solving. Um, and then I, I vet the applications for assistance from prospective clients, uh, and then we help out who we can. Yeah, that's interesting. So what's a, what's a good success story? We all love a good success story. A good success story. I mean, it's it's a lot of research. So, um, you know, my colleagues doing litigation work, they, they have sort of easier kind of movie style glamorous wins, right? Where it's like, we, we won the case. Um, and ours is more like, well, we provided 300 hours of solid work researching the heirs property statute, you know. Um, some of my favorites, I would say, have been where we produce materials for circulation to the public. Um, so, for example, this past semester, a couple of students recorded presentations walking through heirs property statutes um, in different states and kind of making that information more accessible to the general public. I would say the, the, that's some of my favorite work that we do. Yeah, and that's interesting. So when you're talking about heirs, you're talking about people passing property down, but there's some question involved with that. Is that right? Definitely. This is something that that keeps coming back um, to my clinic year after year, this question of heirs property, which, as you say, um, there's a lot of folks in South Carolina that have inherited land, um, but have done it maybe without a formal will. And when that happens, generation after generation, you end up with these fractured property ownership structures. So you could have two acres, but 40 heirs own it. Um, and so that's messy legally in a lot of different ways. And it also puts that property at risk. Um, the family could get dispossessed of the property if somebody sells their share to a corporation. There can be a lawsuit. So it's a big legal question, um, especially in, in the South. Um, to uh, how do you protect the owners of heirs property so we get a fair amount of legal questions um about that and about the policies that affect heirs property right yeah and that, that's interesting because we just uh we just spoke with someone that is from the Gullah Geechee community oh yeah okay and uh -huh. it sounds like a lot of overlap she mentioned the very same issue of um you know ancestors getting land in the 1860s right. but not mm -hmm. having deeds and difficult ancestry and all those kinds of things and tracing it back to maintain their property. Right, right. And it, it definitely disproportionately affects African-American communities in the South. So there are components of, of the um, legacy of slavery and access to justice in the modern time, sort of who, who uh, gets to use a lawyer today, right? Because it's not an affordable thing to hire a lawyer to sort out your 40 heirs who own these two acres. Right. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. That's that's fascinating. So, you know, would you say that this kind of work is your area of expertise or are you, you know, more diverse than that? Or what, is, what do you do? All 
Yeah, so I would say my my scholarly hat is a little bit more theoretical, whereas my practitioner clinical hat is is kind of more technical. Um, so the clinical practitioner hat is much more in the weeds on something like an individual property or property law. Um, my scholarly hat, I would say, um, in general, I write about how law treats rural people and places um, with a particular focus on how public institutions and policies affect rural livelihoods and community vitality. And so I'll, I'll I'll dig in and sort of get into, okay, how did this particular law, and there's a little bit of legal history to it. So, you know, this particular 1988 act, how, how did it impact rural communities? But what I'm really trying to do is, um, if I may be so bold, push the conversation on rural communities in a bit of a, a different direction um, and trying to change how people think about rural communities. Um, especially kind of in in the spheres where I originally hail from, sort of northeastern urban communities. I hear a lot of, oh, rural, I mean, that's that's done, right? Um, that's a thing of the past. Or, oh, every single person in a rural community is a political extremist. Why should I care about them? Um, so trying to paint a more nuanced picture of, of the role of the rural in our society, how long policy got sort of rural economic challenges to where they are today and then what can we do about them especially you know what's a more hopeful way to look at um the the question of sort of the role of the rural in, in our in our country yeah and i think i think that you know you're speaking my language obviously that's that's a passion of mine as well and mm -hmm. i think it's interesting to think about our country because we have not been an urban country for very long yes <clears throat> You know, we were predominantly rural, I think, until like the 1920s, 1930s, when it kind of tipped the other way. And it seems like we, I don't know, disparage or just put aside rural as, oh, it's dying, it's going away, it's uneducated, it's barren, it's farmland. Why do we care? Right. And why should we spend this time and energy on it? Yeah. And I will say I, I've only recently started to think about the history of urbanization through sort of a, a broader lens. And, and it is crazy when you think about not just our country for the past couple hundred years, but human civilization. If you look at sort of the, the chart of urbanization, it's like flat, 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 recent spike, right? And so, yeah, I'm, I'm in no way anti-city. I mean, I'm loving, you know, I'm calling in from Capitol Hill, having a great time. But um, I think we dismiss how recent and novel urbanization is and how maybe we haven't managed it as well as we could. Right. Yeah. Cause it definitely has not only the, it has a lot of negative impacts for rural, you know, you have mm -hmm. out migration, you have pollution, you have resource drains, you have all sorts of issues that arise because of that urbanization. Right. And also I think another way that conversation is overly simplistic is um, urbanization, I, I think is often presented as the obvious answer. Um, and I think there, there's something to it, but then we, we're often dismissive of sort of barriers to entry into urban life, as well as inequality within cities too. Yeah, so talk. let's talk a little bit more about that. You know, there's a lot of things that have happened historically in rural communities that have kind of shaped and brought them to where they are now. Like they're, you know, agriculture, uh, loss of employment, loss of industry, loss of 
I guess just a lot of things that were not the result of natural forces necessarily, but unintended policy actions or things that it just, it happened and we didn't mean to, right? Right. Absolutely. And that's um, definitely one of the the drums that I beat, right? You hear, I think part of that kind of skeptical dismissive conversation we hear is like, well, it was markets. You know, markets have dictated that, you know, agriculture now employs fewer people, um, coal, the massive coal economy that we, you know, built for 100 years is now expensive. Um, people want urban opportunities and and amenities. And so there's this natural kind of sorting of people away from the countryside and, and to the city. And so that's one of the things that I try to do in my research is um, interrogate that question of, is it markets? What are markets? What's the relationship between law and markets? Um, and when you dig into sectors that disproportionately affect rural, especially over the past few decades or the past hundred years, like energy and agriculture, um, as, as you just said, really, you can see these markets are, are shaped very much by public institutions, laws, and policies. Um, and so I think we're missing a big piece if we act like the, these are forces of nature. So one of my kind of talking points is our policies have really driven people out of the countryside. It's not quite the same as benign forces just evolving toward progress. Right, right. And especially because a lot of those were not voluntary. They left because they had virtually no other choice for, you know, livelihoods, for food, for income, right? Right, right. Like farm displacement. Um, I'd say for the past century. I mean, it's a huge topic that I want to dig into more, but, um, you know, if you view each family's farm loss as a tragedy that really hurt an individual family, um, something that affected, you know, really diverse communities and diverse regions for the past 100, 150 years, that's really different from viewing it as kind of an efficient evolution. Um, and certainly our policies have have uh, created displacement from farms en masse right. over the years. Yeah, and that's a, that's a large driving force. And I think, you know, th looking at how those things happen, you know, the loss of the family farm, the rise of big ag or large agriculture, I think a lot of that has to do too with how the money and economy flows. Because when you have right. those family farms, a lot of the money stays local. Right. When you have these larger ones, it tends to flow out. And so it's a drain on that economy, right? Absolutely. I think a lot of these questions of, of rural development are what's an extractive rural economy? What's a rural economy that's in service of, of urban or non-rural versus what, what industries at least had somewhat more of a symbiotic relationship um, with rural communities? So I, I don't consider myself an agriculture expert yet. And I know that there's a lot of concern about kind of small farms, family farms as a sustainable model for food production. And I, I understand those concerns are valid, but it, it does seem like there's consensus that more diversified farm ownership and operation was better for the local community, whereas consolidation has driven people away and really just kind of made 
made some of these places more just like industrial staging grounds rather than a, a community or a town. Right, exactly. Because then you have a lot of trucking and processing and those kinds of things associated with it. And and more of a detachment, I think, from land ownership and mm-hmm. working on the land or leasing the land. There's more sort of a precarious work environment as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would imagine, you know, there's still employment to be had on those large farms, but now you're an employee of a company. You're not working yeah. your land. You're not working your business. Exactly. And yeah. that concept of it's extractive economy, that's a that's an interesting term, you know, and I think immediately of coal and coal mining as well. Yes. That seems like a perfect example of that, right? Absolutely. And that's kind of what seeing patterns like that is what kind of keeps me going with this research agenda. So, you know, I did that fellowship in West Virginia before coming to South Carolina. Um, and it was definitely coal mm-hmm. and Appalachian studies and natural gas and fracking that hooked me on this topic altogether, just kind of seeing, um, you know, I was perhaps somewhat naive going into it, but having the eye-opening experience of, whoa, this is where our energy comes from. Like, right. this is what it's done to people and workers and the environment. Um, and then learning about these concepts of sacrifice zones and environmental injustice and energy injustice. And then I've often been told, oh, you can't, you know, rural America is too diverse. You can't, ju- there's nothing to be found in common between Appalachian coal communities and Northwestern timber communities and <laughs> Southeastern farm communities. And I I think that, that there are no, commonalities and the commonality is often this sort of um, extractive, uh, you know, resource extraction, whether the resource is mm-hmm. food or commodity crops or coal or natural gas or timber. Yeah, and I think a lot of that has to do with the loss of that industry kind of disconnects them from, you know, a lot of these folks have been doing it for years, for generations, and now it's a loss of identity of themselves and their community, and now what do they do? Yeah, that, that's that been hitting me recently, too, this sort of like the, the twice-took thing from the rural. So mm-hmm. we used to extract coal. And now we've taken the coal away, kind of, with, I mean, you know, again, markets versus law, but are, sure. we're, and I'm not anti-environmental, like I, you know, climate change is very real, we need swift action, but mm-hmm. um, leaving coal communities in the lurch after having sort of taken advantage of the dependency as it was evolving doesn't seem ethically correct. Right. And that's, that's a great example of, you know, so, you know. How, what, what do we do? How can we do that better for a community like that that is extracting coal, they're shipping it all over the country to heat the homes and power the factories, and demand goes down, we have alternative sources now. What, what could we do differently structurally for those kind of communities? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the question, right? And I think that you can look at that um, from a whole bunch of different ways, sort of depending on on how you want to frame the question, mm-hmm. you can you can get super narrow. Um, okay, here's a municipality. They got forty percent of their revenue historically from coal. Um, they lost that. Right. How do we help them refill their tax coffers? Right. That's sort of one very specific policy that that you would think about to address that. Um, or you could think federal um 
mine reclamation money? Mm-hmm. Do we want to create new jobs and kind of help transition people while simultaneously maybe supporting some kind of community development block grant um, to help diversify the regional economy or mm-hmm. local economy too? Right. Um, questions like so. I think you can see it as either a question of very technical how do we replace lost numbers of jobs and and local tax revenue or you could see it as a question of how do we restructure our entire society and economy to be more fair and sustainable right that's a that's a big question right there right and people are you know i i will say i think a massive program that addresses uh, the history of extractive practices um throughout the country and in rural communities while addressing economic inequality, like the Green New Deal, mm-hmm. um, I think actually has promise as a model, at least as a structure for tackling some of these really big things. Right, because there's an element there too within these extractive communities where there's environmental damage and then going in and repairing would be a, in the, that's an economic industry, right? And then you have, you know, if you're talking about coal fields throughout Appalachia, for example, you know, that's, that's beautiful country. And now they're ripe for recreational activities, tourism, things that would be more, uh, less extractive and more inclusive and keep economies local. Right. Right. And then there's this simultaneous national urgent policy need to decarbonize the economy. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think the advocates of the Green New Deal are are partially saying, look, we can't count on the private sector um, to do that. Uh, So it seems like there could potentially be a lot of birds with one stone of Mm -hmm. help revitalize rural communities while intentionally um, facilitating green job investment and and creation. Right. Um, Yeah. And we've done that in the past, the Civilian Conservation Corps back in the 30s, right? Post-Depression era. Exactly. Yeah, I think there is this uh, sense. um, I think it's happening in in legal academia and in politics right now that um, that the New Deal era had a lot of lessons um, that are relevant to now in Mm -hmm. terms of uh, returning the balance back to um, the public interest, as opposed to sort of private discretion and in, in service provision. I think they're like the Civilian Conservation Corps, like the way we used to kind of more aggressively do infrastructure and utilities regulation with a view to things like geographic equity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's there's a lot of interest in looking back at that era right now. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot that we can learn there. So. What else have you seen with some of these rural communities as far as like structural barriers that are kind of holding them back, that's preventing them from really growing in a way that they otherwise could? Yeah, so I think that um, a structural barrier that I'm really focused on right now is this question of uh, rural expensiveness. Mm. Um, And so there's this idea um, and again, there, there's, a, I think, a widespread notion that then translates into policies and practice. The idea that rural communities are more expensive and therefore they are more unsustainable than cities. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say expensive, I'm talking about service provision. Um, 
Right. So we, we tend to like the idea of economies of scale and service provision, meaning if you're going to build an airport and you're going to publicly subsidize it, you want to know that a certain number of people are going to use the airport and make it worth your while um, and give public institutions or private investors a worthwhile return on their investment. But this mm -hmm. concept or the idea that efficiency in spending is is just the most important thing right. comes up in virtually any kind of infrastructure service provision conversation, whether it's healthcare, schools, energy, transportation, or, or telecommunications. And when you look at how rural access to those services actually plays out, it tends to be the case that rural services are either more expensive or lower quality. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've been trying to kind of learn about that because it seems concerning that rural communities or really any place where there's a relatively small number of people to be served or just we accept that they're just doomed to be neglected. And so I think it's a structural barrier, both in terms of our kind of societal ethos and in how we crunch the numbers for public and private services. Yeah, it's almost like we've converted everything to some sort of commodity for sale instead of realizing that some things are services that are necessary for life, right? Like the, I think the postal service is a great example of that, right? It's, Absolutely. It's a exactly. constitutionally dictated service, yes. but people talk about how much money it loses. I'm like, well, right. we don't talk about how much the, you know, Department of Defense loses because it's a service, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. And, and that's why it's very, Yes, hearing people call things expensive can be very frustrating right. when you think about the things we spend a lot of money on right. as a society and a government. So, yeah, I, I think it comes down to a, a question of values. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, this one value has been embraced as the value. Um, and there's almost a lack of awareness that efficiency and economies of scale and returns on investment. That's a that's a value set. It's not obje mm -hmm. it's objective in, in some ways, but. Fairness is also a value. Um, Quality of dignity life. Dignity is also a value. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's almost like that urban-rural divide is one of commodification and return on investment versus, you know, way of life versus, you know, mm. self-sustaining communities, really close-knit communities that are just, you know, living a good life while... Mm -hmm you know, eating and educating and all that other good stuff as well. Right. Yeah. And so that's a question that, that I have wanted to look into. Um, you know, I'm, I'm imagine there is something to the idea that, that cities have an, the density does provide some advantages, Sure. Yeah. but I, I question the idea that it, it, it is almost like we want our communities are just populations living their lives to be more like a business mm -hmm. than just humans living kind of as you right. say living a good life right like right. I, i'm not sure that i trust that urban centers are just so dynamic and efficient they just blossom and grow like i'm guessing I, I tend not to look into urban policies i'm guessing there are public government supports that make that happen too um and also why yeah why do we need children living out their school day and it's like does everybody need to be so productive or, or what have you you know right and i always think of the arts when we think about these kinds of conversations you know the arts are not in that kind of context productive right but i think most people would argue they bring great value 
right? What would our lives be like without the arts? And what, you know, but yet we've turned that into commodities, right? You sell art, you, you know, actors get paid and it's great to make a living. Don't get me wrong, but you know, it's, it's almost like it's not valued unless it has some sort of monetary value. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's such a good point. Meanwhile, we, we are often measuring the, the success or failure of this productivity through a measure like GDP, which also doesn't actually account for distributional questions too, and questions of fairness and equality as well. Right, which is where rural gets lost because you can yes. look at a state or a county and yes. there's rural pockets that are hurting and falling behind, but you can't see it because there's so much in the urban area that are doing well, at least financially. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So what what kinds of things do you do or do you think that others could do that you work with that could really kind of, I guess, help these communities turn it around, so to speak? What what are some tangible things that could happen to do this? Yeah. Um, so I think that um, there are a few different ways to to think about it. So again, we could get highly technical or we could get... Um, you know, more cultural or conceptual, right? right? Like, I think from the the kind of cultural side or the how we think about rural communities side, I would want, I, I already know there's a lot of good work happening within rural communities. There's a lot of really cool rural organizing, rural residents who are working hard to, mm-hmm. um, you know, sustain or improve their, their home regions. Um, so I, I say the, the messaging is, primarily for for urbanites right so thing number one is just don't dismiss this portion of of the country um and in fact do reach out um and do engage whether you're a policymaker um or an academic um or whoever i think there's this often an inclination to think of rural as small, but mm-hmm. when you look at it, um, so first of all, that seems unfortunate, like even small numbers of people matter. Right, um, right. Also, when you look at the country as a whole, we're talking about millions of people. So, yeah. and we're talking 20% of the country. That's not, that's one out of five, you know, that's not yeah. nothing. Yeah, it's a lot <laughs> of people um, and, and a lot of people doing a lot of, um, kind of important activities with local, regional, national amenities too, that kind of matter for everyone and not just the folks who are living next to them, whether it's wilderness or historic site or um, the coast or things like that. Right. Um, in a more technical sense, I would say um, that this is where it can kind of be really context specific, but one measure that I was really excited about last year was when Congress passed the American Rescue Plan. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I would say that is a good example. So I've got a quote from former Montana Governor Steve Bullock said it's the biggest investment in rural America in our history. Um, and it's, and it's that's saying a lot. That, we've, we've done a lot with rural in the past. So that's that's a big statement. I know, right? When you think about like the New Deal and the war on poverty, we, we've had these periodic sort of massive um, directions of, of resources to rural communities. And I, I would say that the American Rescue Plan was the next in that cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, so just it, a ton of massive appropriations, like for healthcare, billions for healthcare, rural healthcare providers, rural broadband expa- expansion. $5 million to support farmers of color, 
$750 million for Indian housing and Indian community development block grant programs. What I like about that is not just the money, although sometimes it is just, yeah, spend spend money on the thing if you want right, to address right. it. But I think we can differentiate um, between uh, capacity, capacity building mm -hmm. interventions versus um, maybe dependency creating interventions. Now, I, I'm very mm -hmm. pro just create public jobs. I think that's that's great. Um, I do think if we want to think about sort of, you know, getting a return on your investment, it doesn't necessarily have to be dollars per person. It can be what um, starts or furthers an upward economic development cycle. Right. So you let the airport close, that contributes to the downward cycle. You let the right. hospital close, that contributes to the down downward cycle. Right. You invest in an airport, you invest in, you know, and so... Um, I think thinking about what um, what are the amenities that are the fundamental necessities of life and that make people want to stay in a place or move to a place. And I think mm -hmm. those investments are particularly worthwhile. Yeah, and there's a concept out there that's been emerging of structural urbanism that I think really speaks mm -hmm. to that, where you know almost everything is is built and funded via an assumed urban model where volume will pay for it. You know, in hospitals, that's, you know, my area are a great example of that. We have rural hospitals that are still being paid on a per visit basis and they're paid higher in some cases, but it's still a per visit. And if you just don't have volume, then they're hurting and often close. <clears throat> you know, we've had hundreds close in the past 10 years. Um, but if there's a, viewpoint of, you know, maybe this is a service that's needed for our people, you know, and we fund it in a, you know, almost like a utility type of way. I know Dr. Probst right. is big on this utility model of, yeah. you know, we should fund it at a baseline level and add on, you know, payment for services. Right. And now, okay, you've got a stable hospital and a company might be more willing to move there, you know, same thing with the airport with school mm -hmm. systems you know they, they should be a basic service that's provided for whoever lives there right right yeah and so you know i get a lot of sort of tricky faqs um and i i don't know that i've solved every aspect of this right like a, right. a lot of um maybe urban folks or i think of my, my skeptics or <laughs> a lot of skeptics out there will sort of say well why should i have to subsidize a rural hospital right um Part of my response to that is, I would say most rural communities right now are, are kind of legacy communities or communities that were born over decades, if not centuries, through um, public decision making, kind of like the federal government lured people to where they are mm. right now, mm -hmm. whether it was by propping up the coal economy or... Um, what what was the name for giving um, people large tracts of land in the West? Oh, the homestead. Um, homestead, the yep. homestead laws. It's like, right. yeah. So it, it was sort of like the population was kind of intentionally distributed by mm -hmm. public policies. So I, I think sometimes there's this conception that rural populations last year decided to settle in an inconvenient place and are now right. demanding services. Right. Um, and I think that kind of misses part of the story. And I'm wondering, too, what you've seen here as we're, you know, year two of COVID, mm 
theoretically maybe finally emerging from COVID. We're in February of 2022 right now, and things are looking okay, but I'm afraid to say that out loud. Um, but, you know, I think there are, there's been a huge shift of telework, teleeducation, mm-hmm. all telehealth. You know, I'm wondering if this wouldn't, you know, I think there's a lot of people that live in urban areas that would live in a more rural place if they could commute via their bedroom, right? Yeah. So I'm wondering, like, you know, how do how can we work with rural communities to facilitate that and take advantage of that and prop up their economies and provide those services that are needed, right? Yeah, I think there is so much potential there, right? Mm-hmm. I, I come back to, um, and, and this is partly because over the years, uh, I've heard a lot of conversations and, and probably you have as well, where it's like, oh, we can't get doctors to move to rural areas. Mm-hmm. What do we do? And someone will say, oh, telehealth. Right. And then it's like, okay, but the internet connections are often substantially worse in a good portion right. of the so country. Really so I think it comes back to we still, we got to bite the bullet and make some public invest. And it's happening, right? Mm-hmm. The American mm-hmm. Rescue Plan and other policies. Like I am, I am hopeful that um, we're getting closer to universal service. Um, but I think once that foundation is laid, if we make place matter a little less for accessing critical public services that have a lot of downstream uses like broadband. Um, I think there's a lot of potential there. And I I agree that rural amenities appeal to people and people Mm -hmm. are often living in cities um, out of necessity. Um, And I, I, I can't remember if it's Arkansas, but I do think some states are getting creative in trying to like, I don't want to misinform, but I, I think I saw an article that was like, Arkansas will just pay you to move there. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of those places that will do that. And I know Kansas has been doing that. Yeah, and I, I think that's really neat. And, and you know, I, I would love to look into that more. I think it's a cool idea. Yeah, but as you say, it, it kind of all goes hand in hand of, yeah, that, that a subsidy like that is great. But do you have a hospital? Can my kids right. go to school there and get right. an education? And right. Yeah. You know, that takes that structural commitment that we're not quite there yet. Exactly. Yeah. What will my quality of life actually be? Right. Um, and have you kind of laid the foundation? Right. Whereas if you had a school system that's doing fine, but you can supplement with teleeducation, mm-hmm. you know, you have a good acute emergency room based hospital that's supplemented with telehealth. You know, I think those things are great. I think I think sometimes people think of rural of, oh, we'll just just do this other thing. And they kind of lose sight of, no, they, those are real people. They deserve real people to see them. They deserve physicians. They deserve educators. Um, But we can, we can supplement. They don't necessarily need a full-time cardiologist. Sure. Yeah. But a a primary care doc, absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And so that is where, you know, I want to tell folks, I sometimes think with my, my style of talking about this, people think that, um, I'm kind of saying money never matters. <laughs> there should be no strategy to this whatsoever. Just everyone should get a government salary of $100,000 a year to do nothing. We'll revitalize every town. That's not quite what I'm saying. Although, you know, maybe in my fantasy world, I don't know. But right. um, as you're saying, I think you, you can be strategic. And I do think that that's where we come down to this principle of, you know, there's the adage, if you've seen one rural place, you've seen one rural place. Right, right. Um, there's probably no one size fits all. 
uh, formula for this, and it has to be a multi-tiered federal, state, local project to figure out what works right. for each place, even though there are probably common principles like everybody needs broadband. Right. Yeah, and I think those are the common principles that we're not there yet. You know, does everybody have a primary care facility? You know, that's a basic thing. Does everybody have a school? Does everybody have broadband, running water? You know, those those basic necessities, utilities, you know, I think that could go a long way. And then they have now the room to decide, okay, we're going to focus on tourism. We're going to focus on, you know, this kind of industry. We're going to do this instead and, you know, have an an arts community and bring people in that way. And I think you have to build that baseline. And that does take money, but it's a thoughtful investment in structure, not just throwing money and hope it sticks. And I I do think it's possible that the pandemic has, I know there were headlines and I, I wrote a blog post like a year ago but who knows mm-hmm. if it's relevant now <laughs> has the pandemic kind of changed the conversation on urban life being as desirable as it has been considered over the past few years and and is population sparseness space and air and not having to wear a mask all the time right. not because of policies but because there aren't people around um and that interest and certainly we have so many stories of kind of um you know wealthy out migrants from New York going upstate right. or to Vermont or elsewhere, um, which then raises the question of rural gentrification mm-hmm. too, which is a whole other bucket of worms that's that's has yeah. Yeah. How do you, complicated how do you, and interesting. Yeah. So. How do you bring folks in like that that, you know, yeah. let's be blunt, they increase the tax base, increase the economy, but then maintain that culture, that that community yeah. that existed before and what made it special. Right. Yeah, that's that's difficult. I know, you know, I've been in Columbia for 20 years now, which is astounding to say. And many, many people out there probably would say, oh, Columbia is not a city. But coming from a rural area, it's definitely a city. So we've talked a good bit about some of these challenges and shortcomings of rural communities. Uh, What can you say that you've seen that's really good about rural, especially in South Carolina? Oh, well, you mentioned the Gullah Geechee community. Um, and I will say that's been a, just one of my favorite aspects of rural South Carolina to learn about. Um, just learning about the combination of these rich, ongoing cultural traditions. Um, a lot of folks in that community doing so much important advocacy work um, for things like land retention. Um, and community economic development um, and grappling with sea level rise. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, and then the the region's natural beauty kind of layered on, on top of that. I think going, um, the few trips I've been able to take to those areas of the state is just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that combination of factors is really spectacular. Yeah, yeah, something everybody should see at some point. You know, for those who, you know, you're in DC working, and you, you know, if you bring up rural issues, uh, how, how would you tell them what rural is? How would you define it so that they can get a clear picture of what you're working with here? Yeah, so I actually have a pretty simple definition of rural um, for myself, despite the fact that, you know, I think every federal, federal agency has its its own unique one. Um, yeah. I just think of it as, a, a, first of all, a place. I'm sure you get different answers depending on the discipline, but I think Absolutely. of rural as a type of place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think of it as a type of place um, that is characterized by distance mm-hmm. from an urban center of a certain volume and density, 
Um, and then sparseness, population mm -hmm. sparseness. So mm -hmm. um, there are fewer people and they're living further away from where the, the center of action might be. And I think there are a lot of implications that then flow from just those two things alone. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time today. I think this has been really interesting and illuminating. And I think you've highlighted some deep-seated issues, not just in our rural communities, but across the U.S. And hopefully you can go out there and fix them in the next week or two and make everything better. Oh, no, no problem. Yeah, <laughs> e easily done. No, thanks so much for having me. The conversation has been great. Yeah, so... Uh, that's all we have for today. Uh, if you want more information about her work and what she does, check the show notes. We'll have some links in there for you. And stay tuned for more episodes coming out soon. And if you liked what you've heard, please head over to iTunes and leave us a good five-star rating that helps other people find us. And if you have ideas for other guests you'd like to hear on our program, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. And that's all for today. Thanks for listening to the Growing Rural Podcast. If you found the content valuable, please leave a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen so that others can find us. For more information, please visit our website at scruralhealth.org or find us on Twitter at sc underscore crph. This was recorded at the University of South Carolina in Columbia. Y'all take care. <laughs>